Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-352 of the Run Run Live podcast. How are you doing? You hanging in there? Good. It's been a weird couple of weeks, but we made it. Here we are. It's middle of November. I'm another year older. And as far as I know, the sun is going to come up today. Although I can't be too sure because we're in that part of the year where we wake up in the dark and we come home in the dark. And it's always dark up here in New England. We're actually quite far north if you look at the map. The leaves are all down and the bones of the old earth are poking through the great canvas. It's cold in the mornings. And that feels good on our old bodies. I've already had a fire in the fireplace. Today we have a great chat with Frank Giannino, who held the record for the cross-USA run until Pete Kostelnik broke it. In section one, we'll talk about the advantage of creating seasons of losing fitness in your endurance careers. In section two, we'll inspect how today's environment is wired to keep us from focusing on long-term high-value projects. And I'll issue a challenge for you to join me in a 30-day project. My running is going fine. I'm starting to lay on some more miles now that I'm fully recovered from Portland. I've been doing a lot of strength work, especially in my glutes and my hips. Buddy, the old wonder dog, is doing fine. He's nuts, though. Compulsive border collies do not make the best retirees. He's up in the mornings, ready to go, and bothers me like a three-year-old until he collapses on his bed for a two-hour nap. I'll take him out for lunch for a short run in the woods behind my house. He can still manage a slow 20 minutes, but his hips bother him. We give him those glucosamine treats, and they help. And as near as I can tell, Buddy will be 13 this month. He's got a bit deaf as well. (laughs) But I think some of that may be an affectation. He just doesn't want to listen anymore. It's a bit like living with a crazy old person. He'll start barking for no reason and running around the house, hearing imaginary threats. 
So remember the Run Run Live podcast is ad-free and listener-supported. We do this by offering a membership option where members get access to exclusive members-only audio and other stuff. And yes, we're still working on setting up the separate podcast feed for the members' content. But most recently, I recorded and uploaded the first chapter of the zombie novel I've been writing for 30 years. So the links are in the show notes and at runrunlib.com, so become a member. I've been filling up my bird feeder this month, and the wild birds in my yard, they love it. It's a party outside the window every day. I've got all your normal wild New England birds. There are the small black and white chickadees that are our state bird. There are the similar-looking nuthatches. There are titmice and a flock of sparrows that comes in like a motorcycle gang taking over the town. There are morning doves and cowbirds who pick up the leftovers on the ground. And I've got a pileated woodpecker or two and some angry-looking blue jays. And occasionally we'll be surprised by a goldfinch or a ruby-crested kingslet or some other unique visitor. But this morning I got up to let Buddy out at 5 a.m., and it's dark out. And as I held his collar in one hand and reached for his lead with the other, I saw some movement out of the corner of my eye. And it was a big old white skunk snarfing around under the bird feeder for leftovers not two feet from where I was standing with the dog. And I quickly pulled the dog back inside. Crisis avoided. Now imagine how different my day could have been. Imagine me going to meet with people and they go, My, that's an interesting perfume you have on, Chris. What do you call that? Well, I call it Ode de Forest. And it's by Pepe Le Pew. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Purposeful deconditioning. I am in the progress of getting out of shape. Not job of the hut out of shape, but a planned relaxation of the intensity and volume of my training. I'm doing it on purpose. It feels great. What am I doing to lose fitness? Well, I just came off a hard road marathon, and I had some aches and pains, as you do. I dropped my road running volume down to almost zero for two to three weeks after that. No intense workouts, no long workouts, nothing stressful. I'm still working out six days a week, but instead of running, I'm doing strength work in the gym, some light cycling, and some yoga. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'm at about a 2 in terms of intensity. I'm also not worrying about upcoming races. I've got nothing urgent to prepare for on the calendar. Nothing looking over my shoulder and nagging at me. No mental stress. I'm not on any kind of strict diet. I'm still trying to eat as healthy as I can, but I'm not stressing about it or feeling guilty about it. I am purposefully losing a little fitness. Why would anyone want to lose fitness? Well, I try to take the long view of my endurance sports. I've been at it so long that it could easily become an obsession or a chore. 
And I know very good athletes who just keep training at a high level year over year and are always injured and depressed. And I don't wish that on anyone. Running is not my job. I don't get paid for it. Running does not define who I am. It is only part of who I am. And I'd like it to remain part of my life for years to come, but only, but only if it is a physically and mentally healthy part of my life. And part of this long view is to understand the seasons of your life and the seasons of your training. You need to proactively create seasons of recovery so that you can enjoy this gift over the long term. You need to give your body a break every now and then. You need to give your body and your mind time to recover, not just a couple days, some deep recovery to get rid of all those deep-seated aches and pains. Physically, even if you may not know it, you have stressed and you may have given yourself potential injuries that are lurking after a season of training and racing. If you don't give your body a chance to heal, rebuild, and adapt, these will manifest. And there may be warning signs. Maybe towards the end of that cycle, you really started to hate working out. Maybe you had a sore knee or Achilles or plantar fasciitis that nagged at you. Moving into a season of losing a little fitness, that's a good thing. Schedule it, make time for it, and accept it. So why is it so hard to lose a little fitness? There is an amazing amount of resistance to the season of losing fitness, especially in new runners. That fitness was so hard fought for. It seems a terrible waste to let any of it slip away. There is almost a sense of shame in not training as hard after a season of training. But there can be a social stigma as well. Your friends are doing all these cool races that you want to do. And you're in the position of having to say no. You don't want to be seen or to see yourself as not trying hard, not giving all you can give, not striving. It's not who you are. Then there's that sense of squandering your conditioning. Why not take this hard-fought fitness and parlay it into another big win at another race? We tend to think linearly. Our human systems are not linear. They're more like waves. They have natural peaks and valleys. It is usually foolish, and it is usually foolish to try to extend a wave peak indefinitely. Your natural rhythms will catch up with you eventually. You can either proactively lose a little fitness and use it as a positive season of gaining energy, or wait for the inevitable setback that will force you anyhow. So what do you gain from a season of losing a little fitness? And now I'm talking about weeks, maybe months here. You'll still be working out. You won't lose that much fitness. And you'll be in excellent shape. In an excellent position to build it back. First... The mental break is incredibly empowering. To not have to worry about a long run or hitting a hard tempo session is just a gift. You'll be able to lift your head up from the grind and find perspective in your sport. 
That thing that was starting to be a chore towards the end of that last hard cycle is the same thing you will start to miss after a week or two. You will start to crave the sweet feeling of pushing and testing yourself out on the open road, and it will refresh and recharge your perspective. Given a little vacation, you might just fall back in love. When you're not so focused on your next workout or your next race, it will give you a chance to tend to the other gardens in your life. Is there perhaps some yard work you might have missed? Is there someone you've been neglecting? Okay, Chris, then what happens? At the end of your season of losing a little fitness, you start to feel, well, out of shape. And then you can find the old familiar struggle and embrace the build like an old friend. And coming out of that season of losing a little fitness, you will be engaged and enthusiastic. You won't have to talk yourself into it. You'll be drawn back into that wonderful thrum of training. And take my advice and consider a short season of losing fitness. Consider it an investment in your long-term plan. And now for today's featured interview. All right, Frank, we're back. We're live. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> so, like I said before, big week for you, huh? Uh, yeah, it was nice to um, go down memory lane through the accomplishment of Pete Kostelnik and uh, to be a part of that whole thing. Yes. Yeah, and I I'll, we'll back up and I'll give you an introduction, but uh, he looked great. Whoever was taking the video there of his finish, he looked great. He looked like he just stepped out of the house. Yeah, Pete, on the last day, I call it climbing Mount Everest, summiting Mount Everest. What do you call it? Laid down the gauntlet at midnight. And he said, I'm going to pump out the last 87 miles. And he did it uh, right on time, despite a fall in Patterson. And he achieved his goal was to get to uh, the city before six o'clock and do it in 42 days. He did great. He's he's, uh, the top of his game. It's the first time in the history of uh, transcontinental runs that a runner who's uh, high profile currently in the world of ultra running has really attempted this. Yeah. And in his prime, he's at the right age. He's 29. And uh, it, like I say, just won bad water in record time. And who knows what's on the horizon for him as far as future uh, ultra marathon events. So I think this being one of his uh, bucket list item for him, I think it was a really smart move. He was the right guy at the right time. Let me introduce you, Frank. So you held the record for this transcontinental run on the, the big boy route, which is right. uh, from the Pacific Ocean to the steps of the city hall there in new york city for 36 years yeah that's it was a lot of work for me to do it back then i was chasing a record that had been set that same summer earlier on july 4th a gentleman named stan cottrell ran 48 days one hour and 48 minutes averaging 64 miles a day my original intention was to best the mark prior to stan's effort which was 57 miles a day so stand up the ante by doing seven miles a day more put a lot of pressure on me, who was not a world-class ultramarathoner, but nonetheless planning a second run to see with more support and more organization on my end and my team's end that uh, how many miles I could crank out a day as an average runner, not a top-notch ultramarathoner. So with four to six hours a night of sleep and a solid uh, routine that started at three in the morning, got us on the road at four as far as the running, I figured it out, but it was a struggle right to the finish to come in at uh, 46 days, eight hours and 30 Six minutes just ahead of 48 hours, one hour, 48 minutes by snake control. 
So I was taking him the whole time. Yeah, you were running scared towards the end there, right? Because you knew it was close. At the end, my miles, uh, I was getting very little sleep. We actually were getting up at 2 in the morning, and I was going on uh, about four hours of sleep, period. And Pete will tell you, too, if you haven't talked to him already, we don't sleep when we, when we lay down. It's more of a broken sleep, a restless sleep. And uh, what people can do, uh, even with sleep deprivation, uh, even weeks on end, uh, is amazing, you know. So, and we're, we're both a testament yeah, to that. You're... And any, anybody who's ever been a crosser, I would say, has probably experienced to some level the same thing. Yeah, so I've talked to a lot of people who have run across the country in some form or other, McGilvery and all the supported folks and then some of the unsupported folks. And uh, it tends to sort of follow an arc where you start out with high hopes, it gets really hard, like a week or two in, and potentially is an injury or something. But then exactly. your body That's and your what mind, to Marshall sort of, and Charlie, sort of, and... right? Yeah, and uh, I think it happened to Pete a little bit too. Uh, Pete got day seven. He had uh, by day seven, he uh, was having severe Achilles problems. He chose the uh, route uh, uh, from San Francisco to go across uh, Yosemite Park, and. Um, and his Achilles really got hammered. He also started out uh, doing some pretty high miles. His first two days were 79 and 78 miles. And um, as good as he is, even the top person's going to feel it uh, day after day without too much recovery, even with the best massage therapists and uh, support in the world. So he quickly had to uh, adjust his routine, as all of us had to while we were out there. My routine started slow. I couldn't get my team in the first week to go to anything but KOA campgrounds or something where there were services. There was no time for that. What hit the wall with me was on day three, we actually went 45 minutes out of our way looking for a campground so folks could have, the support team could have a shower, we could plug in the motorhome, dump the vehicle, whatever. And uh, it was when I put the hammer down about day six that the team agreed we were going to park right near the finish each day and lay the mark down. So when I pioneered years ago, kind of gave Marshall and Charlie uh, their framework, four-person support team like I had on my second run, and uh, that 4 a.m. start was the barometer. Getting getting on the road by four seems to be the ticket. What Pete figured out with his level of uh, experience to that point was he was going to need to get the 70 miles in 14 hours. So his goal every day was to start at four, wrap it up four, six, and uh, take a break, do 40 miles, take a break, and then do 30 miles. For him, that worked. For me, that would have been way too much. When you just say 20 miles a day or 30 miles a day, it doesn't sound so hard, but you, we're reaching the point now where in order to break this record, you almost have to go without sleep or be amazingly fast, right? Got to have, first of all, Pete's ability. You got to have Mike Morton. There's a, there's a lot of top-notch athletes out there who ultra run on a regular basis. Until they put themselves like Pete did, and he's the first one to do this, at that high level of performance. Until you put yourself out there, you don't know what you're capable of. There's probably quite a few people in my book that could do what Pete did, but they just got to subject themselves to it. They got to make a pact that they're going to do what it takes to get across. So your record was 46 days? Eight hours and 36 minutes. Yep. Right. And so what did he come in at this week? 42 days, six hours and 30 minutes. Yeah. So that's a significant improvement. Do you think that record will stand? Uh, seven miles. I think Dave McGilvery, and I have talked to him, he believes that uh, it's going to stand for a long time like mine did. It really comes down to whether for the serious ultra marathon or that this kind of a challenge is on their radar. Most people in the ultra community are working a series of goals. They're working on more than one race in the future, and they be it a 100-mile or a 24-hour run, a, a single-track uh, trail race over 
distances that are 50, often even up to 100 miles, whether it's on the radar of any of these guys that are out there, and they know who they are, is another hmm. story. There's really a lot of sacrifice that goes into this, the time off, the incredible support. Pete, Pete had that from his wife and his family and his friends, and uh, I know what it took to round up support years ago. It's very, very difficult. And, you know, all of us who right. crossers, in the end, we really talk a lot about support. It's really the team that was with us that was the difference between whether it was a successful experience or more challenging than it even had to be. So why is that? Human nature. I mean, you're in a stressful situation. You're trying to support the runner. The runner's got to keep moving at all times to reach the daily goal. And then uh, everybody has to get along and you have to define jobs. You have to be organized. So if the chemistry between the sport team isn't that good as the days go by and there's a, a screw up or two on where people are or something wasn't taken care of, then uh, it can cause a lot of friction among the team members. I mean, everybody has defined jobs, but even the most organized campaign can wind up in chaos. Yeah, especially when everybody's under stress and not getting enough sleep and something starts going wrong, right? Sure. Yeah, Pete's guys were sleeping in tents. The only one sleeping in the motorhome was he and uh, his immediate support, and uh, she was amazing. She, um, she did massage on Pete a couple times a day. She um, cooked his meals for him, and it was the two of them that slept in the motorhome. In my, my case, everybody stayed That's... in the motorhome. It was pretty crowded. <laughs> yeah, and then you gotta you it gotta was, hope that the motor yeah. yeah you gotta the hope that the motorhome doesn't yeah. break down yeah yeah oh, and all that yeah, stuff because yeah, we were on a wing and a prayer to get both runs together and uh, the motorhome normally if you're gonna rent a motorhome you want to rent a good one and you want to do it well ahead of time when it's available but uh, we got one of uh, the ones that was left over south of Cleveland and uh, it wasn't in good shape and uh, it several times stopped in a nice sky in Provo showed us a way to show my father a way to go ahead and jumpstart the vehicle if it didn't uh, want to start. So he came up with a little way to do that, which is kind of cool. Huh. In the course of this, you have to, your support team has to figure out a way around a lot of uh, problems that crop up unexpectedly as well, right? So they, you got to MacGyver so stuff be, along the way. To, absolutely. You got to be able to survive anything. And that includes so in, motorhome issues. So, Frank, in 1980, I would have been just finishing up uh, running cross-country my senior year in high school. All right. And I remember that there wasn't a whole lot of technical equipment available for endurance runners back then. You probably wouldn't no, you run no, a pair of Nike. No, I had a pair of uh, – the sponsor was called AAU Shoes. They were around for a relatively brief period of time in, in uh, shoe history. They were a brand that was part of the Intermark Shoe Company, and Intermark Shoe Company was one of many – divisions of the International Seaway Trading Company in Cleveland. So my high school teammates, two of them, their father was a rep, sales rep for them. And uh, within a month before my second trip, he came to my uh, rescue and said, come to Columbus Circle. We're going to go to the shoe show. We're going to meet the uh, managers of my company and get you a sponsor. And they did at the last minute. They came in. They basically underwrit the entire experience. We used Western Union telegrams to get reimbursed for uh, monies we had spent credit card and whatever. So we would keep detailed expenses went along and then they would mail us sponsor money along the way. It was yeah. a very, very tough deal. I mean, all the way around. We did not have modern technology. We did not have phone booths that already avail. We had to sort of take them as they came. We did not have a separate vehicle for the publicist. The publicist was living with us in the motorhome. I said there was there was five of us all together. Yeah. And, me. and everybody had jobs to do, but it would have been better if we had one or two other vehicles. And, you know, this is where there are modern-day journey runners, transcontinental runners, 
have learned from us who came before them. They've, they've read our stories. They know the support situation and how vital it is. And uh, I think Pete was, to me, the crowning achievement of all those who came before him because he learned from the past, worked with the best, Marshall Ulrich, his wife, Heather, and their friends. And Charlie. I got to tell you, it was just awesome. To, uh, Charlie was just invaluable. He had already started running with uh, Charlie Engel with uh, Marshall on the first run. He was really the spirit behind getting that run off in 2008. And uh, they kind of renewed the uh, interest in a record with me when they did their run because it, it had really been a lot of people communicating with me, but I never took anybody seriously because I didn't see the credentials there. I saw the dream, but I didn't see the depth there that they were going to really pull it off. Yeah, and it's interesting because anybody could go out and run across the United States, but to check that record, what you're saying to is do there's it, a very have to small... Be organized. Right. And also there's a very small pool of competent ultra runners in their prime that could pull off a 70 plus mile day over 40 something days. You got it. And you saw what uh, Pete looked like. He was like the Energizer Bunny, fresh at the finish. And uh, that's how you want to finish. You don't want to finish trashed and exhausted. He figured out a way to survive and probably could have kept going and doing more to uh, survive a multi-week lifestyle of having, because that's basically what it becomes. Your job is to get up there and go to work every day, put one in front of the other and stay healthy. And uh, you can't blink as far as your the confidence that you need to do this, because the minute you show weakness, your crew is going to start to falter as well. So Pete really, like I did, he had to be, and Marshall and Charlie, we all had to be constantly in control of what was going on with ourselves and the people working with us so that they they stayed excited and uh, to task. Yeah. And like I said, I was watching the videos of him finishing and his form was really good. And at one point towards the end, he throws in a little burst of speed and he was actually dropping people from the group that was following him. Yeah, no, he was pumped. Definitely. Like I said, at the last day, he uh, he knew the finish was near. And all he was doing was reading his body and all that adrenaline running down the uh, parade route to New York City, you know, down Broadway. That's amazing. I know exactly what he was feeling because I felt the same kind of rush on my final day years ago. So what's it like when you get done with something like that? Doesn't that sort of leave a giant hole in your in your life? Do you sort of have that post-event NY times I, 100? I can, yes. You go from working your diaphragm like that every day, just the change of going from the work mode you're in to no work mode, even going to a light jog the next day. Everything takes a little while for your body and your emotions and your and uh, to readjust. You do find yourself almost at the edge of depression a little bit because you're deep breathing, you know, to try to, try to recapture what you were before you started that. And uh, so yeah, there's definitely some adjustment going on. A lot of it's going to be more physical. It's going to be more uh, psychological than physical. But he'll, he'll adjust. He's enjoying himself. He's in, even as he without wanting to, is going to go there. I can already tell you, he's going to go there and deal with that uh, yeah. post-event post, yeah. uh, adjustment. And then he'll look at all the publicity, all the things that are on his uh, desk, his work, and he'll decide, uh, you know, his next move, what he wants to do next. I know he's, the real thing he's looking forward to is a 24-hour world championships uh, in uh, Belfast. He's been talking about that. So, How long does it so take to recover he, from something like this, Frank? I mean, how do you recover? With me, it was three does days. It, Three days I took wow. off after my second run, and after my first run, 50 miles a day, I actually went out and started racing right away. I used all that mileage to run some of the best times in my life during the year that followed. A 112.05 and a half, 33 flat and 10K, which for me is really moving. And I concentrated on local races. I really didn't care about racing ultramarathon. 
much as I just being in the local scene uh, where I live and mixing it up with uh, friends of mine, competitors. And But after three days, I started to get out there and move and uh, started to bounce back. But I, my body was also hammered. Pete, he had very little to deal with physically regarding his feet being mangled or hammered uh, like they'd been hit with a hammer, a meat hammer. Yeah. Uh, my foot was pretty hammered up. Both my feet were. I had uh, heavy, deep callus between one and two on my right foot. And uh, there was, uh, it looked like a, a red line was uh, like a canyon was there. And that was from things that uh, I had done during my breaks to manage that area of my foot. So like many, many surgeries almost. But uh, there was yeah. uh, a lot of side effects from the shoes. I had real issues with my feet, but I just ran through it. They were just numb. Yeah, so the forefoot. Yeah, and like you said, the shoes weren't the same shoes that we have nowadays, so it's probably a little no, bit of a challenge the tech, there, the tech, too. Right. The tech piece is, is a difference between then and now, but I think other things kind of weigh out and balance it a little bit. Pete had to do a lot more traffic on roads than I did back yeah. then, even though the roads were pretty busy. We kind of all agree, Pennsylvania, you know, Dave McGilvery, myself, Marshall, we all agree that, uh, you know, Pete, that Pennsylvania was the toughest state because you're pushing to the finish. You definitely got your eye on the ball when it comes to the high miles. And, uh, you know, you got some challenges in Pennsylvania. The roads are kind of weird. Uh, the way that the, they cut straight through the state, there's some abrupt hills. It just seems to be a more challenging effort than any part of the run. Yeah, I've done some racing down there, and you're right. The roads are kind of tough. They're all fairly narrow, two-lane blacktops uh, with a lot of yeah. tractor-trailer presence on them. That, that and was those little, issue, no doubt about it, back then, too. Yeah, yeah, and those, yeah, those little steep hills that sort of like march along one after another. Yeah, that's cool. So you're going to lay some back up and get back out there, Frank, see if you can take the record back now? No, no, I'm I'm old. Uh, my, <laughs> my body has issues. And I'm going to be 65 in April. And, you know, my time has come and gone. And uh, I respect all the people over the years who've shown an interest in crossing this wonderful country of ours on their feet. And uh, I will always respect them. And I know Pete respects all of us in, from the past. He brings that forward with his effort. Uh, that was one of the things we talked about at the finish. And uh, he and I will continue to dialogue back and forth, of course, get together even. And in his wonderful family and my wife, Michelle, I mean, it really was a great, amazing experience talking for yeah. three hours with his family, as you remember, as we gathered and uh, just networking a little yeah. bit and getting asked very pointed, very specific, detailed questions by his family and friends about my experience years ago. And I, I warned his, uh, I sort of gave his father and mother the heads up that he might get up, feel a little down when he's done or he may not. I, I'm not Pete. I don't know how he's going to handle it, but I don't see how you can avoid it because you're just going from that everyday work mode into another mode and the body just can't help but adjust somehow. Do you guys ever, anybody ever talk about setting up some sort of uh, X prize type thing for this, putting some money behind it that would attract some of if the uh, high level guys book, to challenge it? Yeah, my book, I think that should happen. If you read my book, 46 Days, and it's the story of my record-breaking run back in 1980, uh, the book details a suggestion I made to TAC Trust, uh, the TAC, back the, the precursor to uh, USATF. They uh, were the first organization formed as a national governing body for running sports right after the Amateur Sports Act of 78. And I sent a uh, proposal to uh, TAC that we should have a superthon in the future, an ultimate marathon across the country, and uh, how it would be shaped and designed. Could be go as you please, like Pete did, because we can monitor it very closely now. Or it could be a stage race, you know, which has been done um, numerous times over the many years, going dating all the way back to the Bunyan Derbies in 28 and 29. So there's, there's two ways to right. approach it, you know, a go as you please crew 
of uh, qualified, incentivized, top-notch people, or you could have the stage race concept. But I think that that it's funny you brought that up because that's a I've been talking about that for 36 years. I've talked about it with Dave McGilvery, who's very interested in supporting such a, a concept. So we're all on the same page. I think uh, if we raise the dialogue a little bit, I think that some real organized people, some players out there, uh, with with our support, we could put something together that would really make it enticing for these guys to want to participate in something big, you know, put up like a, I don't know, a million dollar first prize or something, you know, they do it in the marathon circuit. So why not uh, create an ultra marathon spring, so to speak, and just get all kinds of people out there. Uh, and then they're, they're there. I mean, now there are lots of people doing some very long mileage that just love it. Yeah. And it's getting much more coverage in the popular press. So you see the, the Barkley movie that they made and, and oh, you sure. see the, yeah, you know, this reminds me a lot of, that. of the, yeah, this reminds me of that race across America. That gets a ton of coverage now. They're televising that. You're talking about the bike race. Essentially the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, the guy uh, behind the Bedwater with John Marino, he was one of the uh, supporters of that whole effort when John got it off the ground and, and, and ever since. Yeah, he's, he, yeah, and he's been a participant too. Yeah. All right. Big thing's coming. So I'm going to move you towards the exit here, Frank. I could talk to you all day because this is fascinating. Absolutely. Yes, I would love to run across the country some point in my life, but I think my day may have passed as well. You never know. It's all so, about bucket lists, so, you know, how bad you want Yeah, it. exactly. Give us uh, how people can get in touch with you and where your store right. is, if they want to come in and get some shoes. Sure. We are a running specialty shop. We uh, also are a family shoe store. Our emphasis is on uh, fitting uh, shoes, sometimes shoe inserts, even uh, script orthotics go ahead and help the shoe fit better, but there's not a person we can't help. We carry all the major brands. We're located in Middletown, New York at 329 Route 211 East. You can reach me through my website, which is uh, shoe-fitter.com, or you can go to frankg at shoefitter.com and find us. We're uh, very accessible, 845-342-9226. So I, I welcome talking yeah. to anybody anytime about the shoe industry, about uh fitting about uh, planning uh, multi-day, multi-week journey type efforts. Absolutely. Yeah. And people can just Google you and put the word. Oh, just Google Frankie and country. It's, it's all over. Yep. Yeah. And you'll find them. So, all right. Matt, Absolutely. Thanks very much. I'll let you get back to, honor, Chris. back to work. To work. All right. You cheers. <laughs> okay. You too. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. <laughs> Let's talk about the challenge with urgency and short-term thinking. When you look back on your life, what will you be most proud of? What kind of accomplishments will you most value? Do you think getting to inbox zero on a random Monday morning in November will come to you as one of your great memories? How about checking your Facebook newsfeed 11 times an hour? Yeah, probably not. Those are probably not the things that we will remember as the great accomplishments of our lives. Maybe we will remember creating, nurturing, and launching into the world good and functional human beings, otherwise known as kids. Maybe we will remember the house we built or the stone walls in our garden. Maybe we will be most proud of our leadership, our business accomplishments, or the fruits of our creative minds? What are the differences between the inbox being empty and the book being written? 
What are the differences between checking your timeline and creating a long-lasting, deep relationship? And the two differences I want to consider today with you are urgency and time frame. Most of us have read or at least heard of the great and seminal work of Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. And in that great work, Covey created a matrix of activity that you could use to decide what to work on and what to pursue. Now, he does a much better job of explaining it, and I'm going to devalue this concept by taking it out of context, but let's review for the purpose of this discussion. On one side of the matrix, he posited that there is a spectrum of importance that all activities and projects sit on. If you were forced to put all your activities into one of two piles, they would be important and unimportant. For instance, taking your sick child to the doctor is important. Playing the zombie game on your computer is not important. If you had limited time and had to choose, you'd hopefully choose to take your child to the doctor. On the other side of the matrix is urgency. How urgent is that task or project? Taking your child for a routine checkup sometime this month is not incredibly urgent. Taking your child to the emergency room because they are going into anaphylactic shock from a bee sting is incredibly urgent. All your projects and activities can be ranked as either urgent or not urgent. Now, if you draw a line between the urgent and the not urgent, and another between the important and the not important, you end up with a four-box matrix. And this four-box matrix, the boxes in here are called quadrants. These quadrants are the different combinations of importance and urgency. So important, urgent. Stick with me. I know you've probably heard all this before, but there is an important modern twist to it that I'm laying the groundwork for here, and I'd like you to consider. So quadrant one is all the things that are neither urgent nor important. Maybe playing that zombie game is one of those, although you can rationalize a case for many quadrant one activities that they are recreational, and then they serve a purpose of recharging your batteries. Quadrant two is urgent, but not important. These are things that are banging away at you for your attention, but either have no consequence or add little value. And most of your day-to-day -day admin tasks fall into this category and many of your meetings. Now, quadrant three is urgent and important, i.e. taking that bee sting child to the emergency room to save their lives. These are things that need to be done right now and they have consequences. Many of your core work and career activities fall under this category. If you're a salesperson, this might be the face-to-face -face meetings with the customer or the prospecting calls. Now, quadrant four, this is where the gold is. Quadrant four are those tasks and projects that are important, but not urgent. And because they are not urgent, they get postponed or don't make it onto your to-do list. In Covey's discussion of this, he tells us to look at all the things that chew up your days and plot them into these useful quadrants. For the not urgent, not important, well, try to stop doing them. For the urgent, but not important, see if you can eliminate those too or delegate them. 
for the urgent and important, figure out how to do them well and efficiently. But like I said, the gold is in the quadrant four activities. They are important, but not urgent. The trick is to move them into your task or project list so they get worked on. These quadrant four activities add outsized value to your life and to the organization you're working with or for. You make room to work on these by pushing the quadrant one and two tasks off your list. And it's up to you to raise the priority of these important things so they don't get lost in the wash of life. The goal is not to be busy. The goal is to be effective and to add value, to leave a legacy, to do important things. Why am I bringing up this old, old concept and framework today in 2016? Well, first, because it is timeless. Second, because it has become increasingly relevant in the social media and internet age. When you look at the things you will be proud of at the end of your stay here in this frame and form, they will invariably be long-term, high-value, important projects. They will be important but not urgent. Typically, the gold, the quadrant four things, are long-term in nature. In today's environment, nothing is long-term. In today's environment, you get no impetus, coaching, or encouragement to engage in long-term projects. The only one, the only one who can make these things part of and a priority in your life is you. Everyone else, all the institutions and now all the technologies, do not consider these things a priority and will actively campaign to get you to adopt their priorities. The things that flash on your phone demand your attention right now. I would argue that these things are urgent, but not important. They add no long-term value. And this ties back to having a long-term view of your world. This ties back to knowing deep down in your soul what is important to you. This ties back to the artificial urgency of any kind of social media or media to get your attention. There is no company out there that cares about you or your long-term projects. They only care about influencing what you do right now. Look at something, share something, buy something right now. You're not going to get a pop-up that says, live a healthy life, eat well, and exercise. You will get a ad that says, sign up today to lose 10 pounds in 10 days. You're not going to get an ad that says, spend wisely, save money, and invest in your future. You will get an ad that says, buy this amazing stock and get rich right now. All of the truly important things you want to do with your life have no urgency other than the urgency you create. You have to do this. No one is going to do it for you. You will be swimming against a tide of environmental forces that could care less about your important work, about your legacy, and about the value of your time. So take a moment or two of introspection and measure how you spend your time for a week or two, how much is filled with constructed urgent but unimportant alerts, and take that control back. Identify those non-value-added things that are urgently tugging at your sleeve and stop doing them. 
and instead write or read or exercise or whatever is important to you for those 5 or 10 or 15 minutes. And I'm going to give you some homework. For the next 30 days, I want you to choose some urgent but not important activities to eliminate. And go ahead and send me an email. Let me know what they are. Then I want you to work on the one long-term value-added project that is important to you but not urgent. It could be reading Moby Dick or writing that great American novel. So carve out 15 minutes a day for it for 30 days and send me an email and let me know what it is and then at the end of the month we'll compare notes. I'll give updates if you guys send me stuff. So send me an audio if you want. I'll play it. Let's do this together as a team. Go team. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you have run completely across the country to the end of episode 4-352 of the Run Run Live podcast. Are you tired? Well, the next race for me will be the Thanksgiving morning turkey trot. I don't like 5Ks. You'd think I'd be okay with 20 minutes of intense effort versus a multi-hour campaign, but no, I am not. It takes my body 10 plus minutes to warm up to race effort. And if I jump in cold, the race is almost over before my heart normalizes. And it hurts too. It's a foreign feeling for me now to force myself to race at tempo pace. I'd much prefer the slow, dull blade of a fat-adapted endurance effort to the white-hot burn of a short race. And I'll tell you a story, since it is the fall. When I was uh, 14 or 15, this time of year, I ran cross-country for my school, and we would take the school van with the team to other small New England prep schools within driving distance for our meets. And I remember one cold morning in November where we went away to a meet, and when the race began, it started snowing. And the snowflakes were those big, fluffy ones that you only get early in the season when winter isn't quite sure of itself yet. And they float down like big, fluffy, wet potato chips and dissolve into anything they hit. And when we ran in those days, we ran in short shorts and a racing singlet. And I can remember those big snowflakes hitting and covering my exposed thighs as I raced and making them numb as the snow evaporated. And I don't remember anything else about that day, just the crunch of the leaves under my Nike waffle racers and the numb wetness on my thighs. Enjoy your fall, and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die so ned he laughed so hard it made him cry get a little coffee do a little recording Cold though. You know, coffee gets cold too fast.